that's the phrase in the first Peter text that caught my attention this week. Uh, cause it has kind of felt that way, uh, in the last few months, kind of apocalyptic around here. First with COVID and then lately with the massive social unrest, uh, around systemic racism and, uh, police brutality. And, and then I thought to myself, you know what? Uh, uh, maybe it's good that the, you know, I, that's certainly a different sense than Peter was mentioning, you know, the end being near, um, namely Jesus coming back and making the world right. And I, I found myself kind of thinking of it in that sense, like, you know what? It's probably good for the end to be near because uh, the world as we know it needs to be over. It needs to be a thing of the past. We need a new world. Uh, uh, a new social reality needs to be birthed in our world. Um, and so today we're going to do something we haven't done before in this way. We're going to dedicate our message time today to processing what has been happening in our world related to race, systemic racism, and ultimately the narrative of white supremacy, um, specifically the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery, uh, Amy Cooper's wielding of white privilege in Central Park, Uh, I can't imagine a better day for us to have this conversation, given that we've called today Justice Sunday and are taking up an offering for justice work in our city. Um, Our processing in this time, as is our culture and custom, will be mostly conversation-based. And so as we dig into that, I want to offer some guidelines for conversation. And I'm, I'm borrowing from and uh, adapting some guidelines I got from Sarah Holland that she uses with Come Before Winter. Um, don't don't blame me for, or don't blame her for my adaptations of this. Um, it's, it is really good. Um, trust God and God's presence in each person is the first guideline. Make room for every person to share who wants to, where no per- one person dominates the conversation. Listen to God and to one another. Speak when God urges. Hold each person in respect, forgiving in advance. And pray for one another and for God's leading as we work together to discern God's will for each of us, for the good of all of us. Uh, Our conversation will take place in four moves. First, we'll have the opportunity to mourn and grieve the loss and injustice of what has happened in the last few weeks. Second, we'll have the opportunity to look within ourselves and to reflect on our own culpability and invitation to confession and repentance, especially those of us who are white. Third, we will share communion together, reflecting theologically on God's presence and work in the midst of such injustice in our world. And finally, instead of our usual Thanksgiving time, we'll have the opportunity to make commitments to each other uh, about action that God is inviting us to take. After communion also, Cecily Smith will be joining us to talk about her work with Abides Women Health Services, one of the recipients of our annual justice offering that starts today. So uh, let me pray, and then we will dive in. 
God, we know you're here with us. We know and believe that the Holy Spirit, uh, your Holy Spirit, lives in the people of God um, and that you are in our midst. God, would you open our eyes and our hearts to your presence in our midst? Would you be a conversation partner with us here? Would you help us to hear your words, your voice, as we also listen deeply to one another? God, give us grace as we prayed to, to sit in the discomfort that we might experience for the sake of healing and righteousness and justice. God, lead us forward in your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start with the first question. Um, what are you mourning today about racism, about recent events, about our country, um, and as we've grown accustomed to do on Zoom, if you'll leave a, a note in the chat bar, I will, I'll moderate and call on um, folks to share uh, as we do that. I think um, I'm mourning a lot of the optimism that I had about um, just where we were as a, as a church and as a country. Um, I think this has been the worst month I've ever had as a black man, right? Like in other areas of my life, yeah. But as a black man, this has been the worst month for me. And I think primarily because I'm scared of three things, right? I'm scared of, uh, I'm scared of getting locked up for something I didn't do. I joke with my uh, brother Ben in a restaurant about about that. Um, I'm scared of uh, being pulled over and not being able to see my family again. Um, and I'm I'm scared of, of white women um, because of the uh, the position that they've held in the past uh, uh, for accused black men. Um, and to my sisters, I would say uh, that is not a carte blanche thing, but, uh, it changes how I, I behave. It's a fear, uh, that if you notice I might not stand as close or, you know, uh, while I relate, I, I try in little ways to distance. And, um, it's, in a lot of ways I'm ashamed of that. You know what I'm saying? Um, and so I, I mourn that vision of myself, um, that would just trust all those things, right? Trust that the justice system works. Trust that um, my outcome in a, a police situation would be like anyone else's and trust that uh, I can have friendships and relationships across gender and across racial lines that are uh, beautiful and productive. Thank you. Who else? What are you mourning? It's making you sad right now about the state of things. Jen? I mourn white people who can't see. 
or who aren't trying to see. The injustice. Um, um, the systems that have been set in place to elevate white people over others. I've worn that. Sean? Oh, um, I'm kind of upset because it's just been a really hard month with all the racism and not being able to see my friends. Just really hard. It's very upsetting. Yeah, thank you, Sean, for sharing that. Uh, I think one thing I'm warning right now is um, just to yet again see black Americans put in an impossible situation, um, being in a position where we have this pandemic going on, but there being an absolute need to protest and be in groups and be in streets um, and then being, you know, uh, trying to deal with systems that are almost intractable, like our city leadership. Um, so I'm just really frustrated and tired of seeing, um, black Americans put in, you know, impossible multi-tiered situations, um, where they have to put themselves at risk in order to get themselves out of risk. Jordan. Uh, I guess it's my turn now. Um, I think for me, I'm just mourning the loss of innocence. Uh, as the, the Gen Z, am I Gen Z? The millennial kind of thing. I'm always on social media. And so one of the things that I've noticed recently is there is a lot of children in the, these protests as well. And I, I was just looking through the comment section and there was like a comment where they were like, back when I was like nine or 10, my mom had to sit me down and say, as a black boy, you're going to be pulled over more often and you're you might have to worry about being shot and all of these things and then just looking back at like old cases that have been reopened with I can't remember anything was it Trevon Martin who was playing with a toy gun and they got Tamir Rice Mm -hmm. there's so many um Tamir Rice where he was just playing with a toy gun and he got shot and I just there was I think the most striking of all of them was George Floyd's daughter who was sitting I think her uncle she was sitting on her uncle's um shoulders and she said my daddy changed the world and I don't know I just feel like that's not something that a child should have to understand but in the state of the world it's something that they're being forced to understand and I just more than that loss of innocence for all the children that have to do with it thank you Jordan Uh, one thing that I'm mourning uh, I think it might have been the New York Times or some major publication I saw in my feed that included the transcript of those eight minutes and 46 seconds um, where George said he couldn't breathe. He called out for his mother. Um, 
and with all of the um, with all of the research that I've done um, recently on trauma and traumatization um, and the sense of how it's so much characterized about by being immobilized or totally powerless. Um, uh, it was just a glimpse for me into the deep, deep trauma of um, uh, my brothers and sisters in the black community. And it just makes me deeply sad uh, and also deeply angry. Terry? Um, I, I work in a very diverse uh, organization, and so this week um, our team got together and um, discussed things, and I think the thing that hit me the hardest is, Jordan kind of mentioned it, is the innocence that my my black colleagues never experienced. Just that growing up and the innocence that, um, that we as white people had that they never had. And some of their stories that they shared, um, have disturbed me this entire week of, um, of the fear, the everyday fear that, um, that they've lived with from the time they were little until whatever age they are now. And um, just some of their stories have just tore me up, has has just, um, I've taken a whole lot of steps backwards this week. And I even reached out to one of them that I work with um, for that accountability and being able to discuss some of of where she's been and, and me trying to understand that. Um, and so we've got that open communication that we can go to each other and talk about it. But just the innocence that they didn't have that we did. And that hurts my heart a lot. I also mentioned something in there. I also, uh, to follow Terry. Um, for me, I am mourning personally my white obliviousness over the years, how it has been second nature to ignore, second nature to be unaware. Not at, it's breathing the air that I live in. Um, a few years ago, and I don't know if I've mentioned this to y'all before, and I know I've told the story, but a few years ago, my father fought World War II in the Korean War. And he received VA benefits to go to pharmacy school and became a pharmacist. All right? My wife, was Terry, was looking at this directory, World War II directory, from Victory, Oklahoma, where my father lived. And she went to look for my dad's name, you know, to find his picture. So she, Willis, she turns to the back of the directory and she can't find dad. All she sees are black faces because 
they've been relegated to the back of the directory. They've not been, they're separate. And when it dawned on her, it was like a bomb was dropped in our kitchen. Um, what was going on there? And I started back, back then I started taking a look and, and reflecting personally on my, on my privilege where I realized that so many that came back from World War II, black servicemen who technically had the VA benefit available, but who were discouraged from using it. And even then they could not get in, especially in the South, but not just the South, could not get into the schools like my father was in as a pharmacist. So at my age, when I was a teenager, I had a leg up that so many of my friends in my school did not have as a result of that. And I was clueless. And I still think I am clueless, to be quite honest. Um, so, yeah, that's I'm more than that. I'm more than that. Uh, ben... And then Sarah, and we'll we'll move on to the next question unless there are other responses of morning. Ben, I'm, pa- I'm passing to Sarah. My morning is connected to confession, and so fits better there. Pass. Sarah. Okay. I made my loud kids leave just in time. Um. Yeah, I on Friday night I marched through our neighborhood, and it was primarily just white neighbors um, walking up and down Floyd Road uh, in memory of George Floyd. And just as we walked, I thought about the difference between the protests that I've seen on the news and the kind of protests that I know happen even in downtown Dallas, not that far away from, you know, Richardson. And I just felt really sick and was really mourning the fact that as a white person, uh, as a group, we're allowed to get angry and we're allowed to, um, say awful things and it can just be chalked up to us being mad or expressing ourselves. But that, uh, if we had had a large group of non-white people marching through our neighborhood, it would have seemed much more threatening to our neighbors. I just mourn the fact that non-white anger is not allowed and is um, seen um, in such a a bad light. And I just mourned all the times that I thought in myself, oh, we need to moderate this or it's better just to, you know, not get angry. I just mourn the the moderation that we push on people of color um, when they have every right to be completely and totally furious. Um, it just made me so sad. Sorry, is she doing something behind me? Yes. <laughs> I put bunny ears on. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> we had some bunny ears for a minute. <laughs> 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 Thank you, Sarah. So sorry. <laughs> That's okay. We love Aiden. All right, let's let's move into the second um, element uh, question. Uh, in what ways is God 
inviting you to recognize your own culpability in racism in our country, um, especially us white folks? In what ways is God inviting you to confession and repentance? Again, put a note in the chat bar and I will call on you. Uh, for me, I, I feel um, a need to confess as a black woman um, who has been raised in predominantly uh, white areas and had a lot of friends of different ethnicities. And because I've had those friends who were kind to me, um, you know, part of my life, I, I mainly remain silent, you know, most times because I don't want to be offensive because I don't want to come across as the angry black girl or the angry black woman. So I won't speak up for my race. Um, there have been times where because of a level of affluence that I have had in my upbringing, you know, I've been, I've lived in urban areas of Philadelphia, but a majority of my life was in suburban areas of Philadelphia. And I think that um, when I really inspect my heart, there may have been times where there was some prejudice, some elitism, even towards my own race. And also it, it changed, it shaped my own conversation because there were some things that I hadn't been exposed to that maybe friends who were, who grew up in more impoverished areas experienced. And so I think being in this time and things being a little bit more visible, it makes it um, hard to ignore. It makes me feel sad that um, I've ignored the plight of even people of my own race because I didn't realize some things that they were maybe going through. And I think about Duncan and I were going out for a walk a few years ago, and we were going out late at night. We wanted to wait until the girls were asleep and we can do like a quick mile around the neighborhood and get back home. And we were going through a high school and a police officer stopped us. And he was like, you know, what are you doing? You know, what are you guys doing? And me being me, I kind of rose up a little bit. I was like, we're walking. And, you know, Duncan jumped in and was like, yeah, we're just, you know, kind of walking or whatever. And he just said, yeah, it's, it's public. Well, whatever it's private property. You can't walk on the high school track. And then when he let us go, it wasn't any issue. But when he was gone, Duncan looked at me. He was like, babe, you can't rise up like that. You can't do that because anything could happen to us if you rise up like that. And it wasn't a time where, you know, you have phones on, on you or trying to film anything. And so in retrospect, thinking something could have happened to him, something could have happened to me, and we were just black walking. <laughs> You know, and so I think my confession is just that's why I've been a little bit more vocal on social media. That's why I've decided to go to protests because I've always been silent. I've been silent because it didn't necessarily affect me. It didn't affect me in my suburban house. It didn't affect me in my measure of affluence. It didn't affect me um, because I had white friends who weren't prejudiced. It didn't affect me. Um, it just didn't affect me, but it affects me. Wow. Um, 
Thank you, Markeela. Uh, in the same way, I want to confess um, my own silence and um, uh, obliviousness. I think it's certainly been true of me that I have used the luxury of my privilege as a way to um, ignore or not pay, not engage as as deeply as I would have otherwise. In the last week, I have become aware of ways even that I have been um, inhospitable, honestly, to my my brothers and sisters of color. Um, uh, Dotson's even to you, you and your family um, by uh, living in a dream world that just did not exist. And uh, I confess that. I confess ways that I, I have just uh, stayed in the comfort of my whiteness and not, not sought to, uh, to be hospitable, um, to pay attention, to engage as deeply, um, just because I didn't have to. And I don't want to do that anymore. Uh, ben, you're up. Yeah, I um, uh, mourn, but really I confess that this hasn't been the worst month of my life. Um, and as a card-carrying progressive white liberal, um, I like to take internal pride of my support of Black Lives Matter uh, from the beginning. But the truth of the matter is um, I've refused to push colleagues um, and family members and even friends uh, because of the discomfort it would create for them and for me. Um, and uh, I confess all of the ways that I chose my own um, comfort and safety and sort of ran to my privilege um, instead of standing with and aside those who don't have the privilege um, to do so. Val and Miles. Uh, um, the ways that I've just been performative in seeking justice um, wanting to be seen as a good white person and not like all those other white people <laughs> using my privilege when I decide when to engage and when to disengage of not taking the time of posting something on social media but not taking the time to truly engage in difficult conversations with family, with friends, in spaces where I know I can easily move because of my white privilege and I choose my own comfort or the comfort of the other white people around me instead of engaging. Um, I also confess the ways that I've burdened my black friends by asking them to educate me, by asking them to approve of the way that I'm acting, by not allowing them to be honest. Um, I confess that that's still a struggle within me and I ask 
our church community to hold me accountable. I ask that you call me out when you see it. I hope I can be gracious and listen. And I ask that you encourage me um, to do the right thing. I'll jump in and share too. Um, so many things, you know, have been echoed for me in, in, in what has been shared so far um, today and just an awareness. I, I thought I was aware of my white privilege. It's been a, a multi-year journey for me on that. And then this, this month has awakened me um, to how much work I still have left to do. Um, and I confess to, to being further back on that road than I realized. And uh, something actually Lauren Cohn shared on her Instagram, uh, it was a repost, really kind of hit me between the eyes and I wanted to share it here. Um, it says, here's an example of how white privilege sounds. You keep saying it's horrible that an innocent black man was killed, but destroying property has got to stop. Try saying it's horrible that property is being destroyed, but killing innocent black men has to stop. You're prioritizing the wrong part. At church uh, this morning, I confessed prioritizing the wrong part. I have missed that in the past. Um, and that's wrong. Human lives are the most important thing and always will be. Um, when we were walking home from the, from walking to our car from the, the event yesterday at Clive Warren Park, we passed a couple of officers, um, police officers who were taking a break, sitting on a bench and uh, two white officers and, and they tipped their hats at us and said, you know, have a good afternoon folks. Um, I confess that's my interaction with officers. Um, I've been annoyed when I've been pulled over for speeding. Um, when I was a dumb teenager, uh, and got for setting off fireworks in the middle of a neighborhood at 4 a.m., I never feared for my life or for being even arrested. Um, I was just afraid they'd tell my parents. Um, my, I confess my experience with police is not the experience that much of our country has. And I have been blind to that. And even, even yesterday after that interaction, my first reaction was, see, there's the cops are, uh, it's not all that bad. They still smile and wave at you on the street even though I know my brothers and sisters two blocks over are not being smiled and waved at. Um, and church, I confess, I'm still learning and I'm, I'm still needing to see things with new eyes. Um, and just like Val, I hope you will hold me accountable to that, um, challenge me um, to live up to that. Thanks, Val. Miles, uh, Sharon, and then we'll move to the the next thing, unless there's additional confession. Thanks. Um, first, on a personal level, I, I too, am listening, learning, realizing how much ignorance I've had. Um, even like some others have said, when I, I thought I was kind of being understanding and I've, I've realized there's so much more that I didn't understand about how much my experience is different, um, from the experience of others. And since you asked about culpability, I wanted, I wanted to talk about like just professionally too. 
I'm a marketer and I postal, I do professional, whether it's flyers or social media, I have a say in pictures that are posted that hundreds of thousands of people see. Um, and just over, over the past year, I've learned a lot about that and just the responsibility that I have there. And there's been sometimes, I think the, the shift for me has been in, you know, for a while there's been a big push as marketers were supposed to show diversity because you're just supposed to show diversity hands down. And, you know, everybody kind of knows that. Um, but realizing like the heart behind that has changed for me and why do I need to be careful about making sure that those pictures are not just all white people? Because honestly, when you're looking for stock photography, it's just easier to find pictures of white people because there, there's just more of them. Um, so taking the time to make sure that that picture that hundreds of thousands of people are going to see on social media, tell the right story is harder. Um, there was a story, something came up at work several months ago um, of just an initiative that my work was doing to kind of help mothers who were coming out of prison to talk to their daughters. Um, it was a beautiful initiative, a good thing. And so I was responsible for finding a photo that went with it. And I was looking for photos and it had to be, I wanted you know, a, a, a picture of a mother and a daughter with a mother that was, Sorry, a daughter that was old enough to have a conversation, but not a teenager, because it was, it was supposed to be, it was reflecting conversations with children. And the picture that I, that I found was of a, a black mother and her daughter, and it was a beautiful picture, very sweet. Um, so I presented that to my team to use, and so one of my colleagues who was a black woman just automatically was like, I don't appreciate the fact that, that that's a, that's a black family. And all I had seen truly just like a mother and a daughter old enough to have a conversation is what I saw. And she saw the connection between mothers coming out of prison and the story behind that picture was that the black people were the ones in prison. And she she made that connection immediately. And I didn't, and I'm so grateful. She got up and started to kind of leave the room as she said something kind of out of, out of the side of her mouth. Cause I think she felt like she needed to say something, but she was also scared to say something. Um, and we got to have a good conversation about it, and I'm so grateful. And she really helped me see the responsibility that I have as a marketer. She she didn't put those words on me. Those are my words based on her caring and generous opening up and letting me see the story that I was telling without realizing what I was telling. Um, now I spend a lot more time picking photos because I realize the story just a certain photo with a certain caption and putting it up in a place where a whole bunch of people see it. And I hadn't really thought about the depth of that and how I was supporting certain systems or mentalities. Um, I'm grateful for a coworker that, that walked through that with me and said something. And um, I lament the fact that I didn't, I didn't make that connection sooner. There was something I wanted to be efficient and move on. And she was like, no, you, you got to think about the story you're telling. Um, Anyway, Megan. Um, I confess, like, I'll sign petitions, I'll email politicians, um, but when it's in places that are really close to home, I don't speak. Um, I think I feel like I'm afraid to talk to people at work about ways that we assess and grade students that are 
racist. Um, and I feel like sometimes I don't want to just, I'm, I'm an adjunct nobody. And so, um, I don't speak up, um, about that. And I feel like I should. Um, I also don't raise issues at the school when I see racism, um, in a school of primarily Latino students. Nearly all the kids at Henry School are white in the talented and gifted program. And that's a problem. And I've, I've, I've seen it and I lamented it, but I haven't done anything about it. Um, so I confess that I haven't done the things that I can do. And uh, I want to change that. Thank you all for sharing. Uh, every week we join churches all over the world as we participate in the historic practice of communion. Uh, in communion, we remember the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and confess that Jesus is present here with us as the host of our communion meal. Mark 14 says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take it, this is my body. And then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. What can we say about God as we gather around this table to share communion and remember Jesus in this time of injustice and strife? Uh, there's so much we could say but I'll offer three brief reflections. First, our leader, our master, the one we confess as king and lord of the cosmos, Jesus, was a person of color at the margins of society who was himself unjustly killed by the state. Black liberation theologian James Cone compares the cross to the lynching tree upon which the lives of numerous black bodies were unjustly killed. Jesus was crucified in solidarity with all those who suffer unjustly. And to the extent we confess that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the fullness of deity, we also confess that it was not just a man who suffered and was crucified with all those who suffer unjustly, but God's own self. Where is God? God is weeping and suffering and dying. Second, the gospel we confess, the good news of the kingdom of God that Jesus inaugurated in his life and death and resurrection, both restores humanity's connection with God and with humanity itself. The gospel destroys the walls of hostility that divide humanity into antagonistic categories of Jew and Gentile, white and black, male and female, straight and gay. The gospel of Jesus destroys the narrative of white supremacy that fuels the institutionalization of racism in our country. The gospel of Jesus declares that black lives matter because black bodies reflect the image of God in the same way all bodies do. And third, 
the gospel is not only about Jesus' death, but also about his resurrection. Uh, Jesus was raised from the dead. And that resurrection demonstrates that a new world is possible and is, in fact, making its way into our present reality. The reign of sin and death is on the way out, though it's kicking and screaming. And the reign of justice and righteousness is on the way in. The long arc of the universe indeed bends toward justice. Injustice will not have the last word. The whole world, ourselves included, will experience resurrection, just as Jesus did. The spirit of Jesus makes possible the formation of a community of people who embody the values of the gospel for justice, righteousness, liberation, diversity, and hospitality. I'm going to pray, and after I pray, I want to invite you to... um, to share in the bread and the cup with whatever you have at your home. If you don't have anything, that's okay. Um, we're communing together and sometimes Zoom, uh, you know, uh, makes the, the virtual experience of that a little complicated. Um, uh, but, but as always with our practice of communion together, all are welcome and none are required. So let's, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are not aloof from our suffering and from the suffering of our black brothers and sisters. And I thank you that you stand in solidarity, that you are not far off, um, that you are for those who are at the margins, um, and that you you declare sin for what it is, um, that the devaluing of of anyone, particularly black bodies on, on, um, because of their blackness is wrong and unjust and simple. And, um, Lord, Lord Jesus, we stand with you in that we come to this table that is a table for all, a table of welcome and hospitality and affirmation. And we receive the, the bread and the cup, uh, as, as emblems of your body and of your blood and also as emblems of the solidarity that you share with our world and suffering um, and as emblems of the promise of hope of resurrection and restoration and justice and righteousness that we yearn for and want to participate in. We, uh, we commune with you in this time, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.
Jesus says that true wisdom lies in both hearing his words and putting them into practice. Um, If we leave today's conversation without some commitment to practice and action, what we've done here is in danger of amounting to not much more than self-centered emotional catharsis. Um, God invites us to be active participants in the inbreaking kingdom of justice and peace, um, which leads us to our final move of the conversation. What commitments are you willing to make today to stand against the powers of injustice and to participate in God's work of justice and peace? Again, leave a note in the the chat bar and I'll moderate. And uh, I see Cecily's joined us. Hi, Cecily. We've got about five minutes or so more of conversation, and then we'll start our conversation with you. It's good to see you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Uh, Jen? Um, I commit to reading um, from more black voices. I need... um, I need to take the responsibility of educating myself um, with people who have put things in print um, and and uh, listening to black voices, um, but also not giving them the burden um, of educating me. So that's my commitment. Thanks, Jen. Uh, Duncan next, and then we'll do John after that. Uh, I think um, I commit to finding injustices everywhere. I think earlier I I mentioned my fear of white women. Um, I think that's bled into a uh, reluctance to see the hurting of women. Um, I think... uh, we can't just stop with black lives, right? That's important. That's uh, in front of us right now. But I think those same injustices are happening elsewhere. Um, and uh, I saw it this week. I, I wrote a post about uh, next steps, about what we can't stop with gestures and we have to move towards next steps. And I mentioned a bunch of, a bunch of things and a, a sister of mine jumped on and was like, don't forget about... Um, Black female outcomes with um, in the medical systems, um, and it's it's just something that I hadn't even thought of. Uh, so I, I commit to actually um, seeing justice everywhere. Word. Thanks, John Oliver. Yeah, <clears throat> this morning I wrote the following prayer request. I'm gonna put on uh, after this meeting on uh, Facebook. And to my email contact base, uh, briefly, I've had trouble sleep. I've had trouble sleeping lately. It's rare for me. The matters in news disturb me far more than ever before. My consumption of ice cream had been a few times a week. It's up to daily. That's my go-to comfort food. Uh, I seek to find the ways to participate in the solution instead of worrying about the complex problems. I can't control other people, but I can use my time to serve others. I've been, I've been, I've been using hours of online research about racial reconciliation. I've located some books, some podcasts, some articles, some sermons, 
Besides the resources, I want to share simple guidelines for intercessors during this critical season. Some examples include meaningful police department policy reforms, powerful sermons on repentance, lasting friendships between Christian leaders of all races. I'll put those in a document and share those with my contacts soon. I'm just asking for wisdom about how to proceed um, uh, and, and, and the grace of God to be on me in doing this. Right on. Thank you, John. All right. I want to make sure we give Cecily um, enough time, but I also want to hear from the voices that are on this chat bar. I think this is important. Um, just be sensitive. If you could put into action, you know, in, in two or three sentences, in 30 seconds, kind of what captures the action you feel called to, um, you know, obviously there's grace, but just, you know, help us in that way for you to follow. Um, Val and then Kara, and we've got a couple after that. Okay, I commit to um, speaking up and having difficult conversations, particularly in um, white spaces, particularly with my family, um, my friends that are in all white circles. Um, so I speak, I commit to speaking up. Um, and being okay with the discomfort there. And then I also commit to um, uh, being open to correction and um, and, and being uh, gracious when, when people need to check me. Thank you, Val. Right on. Uh, who was after Val? Kara. What you got, Kara? Uh, this is also including my morning being far away during this time has been really uh, weird and challenging. And I commit to being in solidarity with everyone during this time from afar. Thank you, Kira. Kira's coming in from, uh, she's piping in from El Salvador for those of you who, uh, who don't know her. Uh, ben. Yeah, I commit to use a position I have at the university um, to push conversations, particularly with our faculty, around white fragility um, and um, diversity training. That's great. Thank you, Ben. Sarah Walker? I just commit to use my superpower of wanting to burn everything down uh, <laughs> under the wisdom of black people and people of color instead mm -hmm. of trying to moderate them in my mind like I have in the past. And... Um, and needing like a white person to validate it. I just, I commit to following the leadership of people of color in what needs to be burned down and how. So. Right on. Um, and I, I will say for myself and my silence and inhospitable, inhospitableness in the past, uh, I don't even know if that's a word. <laughs> uh, I, I commit to helping uh, facilitate some conversations with our leadership team, with all of you, and with our our uh, our brothers and sisters of color about how our community continues to grow as a more hospitable culture and environment for cultures beyond the white culture that's predominant right now in our in our midst. Uh, thank you, thank you all for. Um, for the ways you've shared this morning. Um, uh, I want you all to know, I, I, this is recording, and 
I don't have any plans of posting this. This is a, uh, unless for some reason, you know, unless there's good reason for us to, um, and I'm open to input about that, but uh, I just, you know, I noticed this recording up there um, and maybe that's a way to not be silent. I don't know. I'll ask, I'll ask my, I'll ask all of you how you feel about that. Um, but um, thank you. Thanks for all, uh, for all of you for sharing and uh, let's go to work. Let's, Let's, let's go to work on those commitments that we've made and continue to learn and grow. Um, I'm really excited to have Executive Director Cecily Smith with us um, today of Abide Women's Health Services. And I think she is currently a non-video participant. There she is. Boom. Uh, right on. I can see her on the screen now. Um, Abide is one of the organizations that we're partnering with in our annual justice offering uh, along with the North, Te North Texas Food Bank and City Square. Um, one of the reasons that I'm excited and feel like this is a timely partnership is because uh, Abide is led by women of color for women of color, and that's a really significant thing. That's important. Um, we need Cecily's leadership in a time like this. Uh, so, Cecily, thank you again for joining us and being with us. And I just like to invite you to tell the story of Abide and the work that you're doing in Dallas. I think you're muted. Yep. Right on. So, yeah. Okay, cool. So I just wanted to first thank you for um, inviting me to come speak to your church um, to your family. And, um, second, thank, uh, Meg and Ted Howard for your continual support of Abide. Um, so Abide, I really wish that Abide didn't have to exist. Um, quite frankly, I wish, I wish I was out of a job. Um, but it exists, um, to improve birth outcomes in communities with the lowest quality of care. And so, um, when I say that, I'm going to go kind of go back to how Abide started. Um, it started, I was a doula, a childbirth educator, and I was very green and unaware of the racial disparities in maternal health. I just wasn't. It wasn't, I don't know. I, I didn't know. And then once I became aware through um, a grand midwife that I absolutely admire, her name is Mama Jenny Joseph, I... Um, Man, it changed, it rocked my world and changed the concept of how I advocate for life, period. And so um, what I learned is that black women die at three to four times the rate of white women in childbirth um, and even at five times the rate of white women in childbirth um, for black, black women that are educated um, compared to white women that are not educated. Uh, black babies die at two to three times the rate of white babies. These statistics hit me and I just was like, what? And so, um, that's, that's where the seed was planted. It was like, okay, I know this. This is wrong. Something must be done. And so in Dallas, um, we started researching the disparities within our city and they are astronomical. Like the disparities, in maternal health and health across the board in South Dallas and Southern sector of Dallas, um, high diabetes, highest in heart disease, highest in cancer, 
And the thing is, is it's not, it's not the fault. (laughs) It's not the fault of people that look like me, not in any way. Um, When you start looking at the systemic injustices, you look at uh, um, environmental racism that contributes to even cancer. Okay. Um, You have to look at those things. And so what happened is we, we saw this and we said something had to be done. And so when it comes to maternal health care, we decided to create an organization that centers black women, centers black women and women of color, because nowhere in this country are women really centered, black women centered, you know, if they were centered, if we were centered, we would not have these disparities. And so, um, Right now we're in the, we're what you call a perinatal safe spot, which is a, a, it can be a space, it can be a phone call, it can be a clinic, but we're a space that's located in a maternal toxic environment, which is a place where it is unsafe for a woman to be pregnant. And it is also unsafe for um, a woman to give birth and to raise a child. Okay. And so we are a perinatal safe, safe spot. Um, seeking to open our easy access clinic this year, a free clinic for any woman in need of support of prenatal and postnatal care. And um, with the goal of opening a, the first um, woman of color led birth center in, in Dallas. So I could talk all day about it, but I know we don't have all day. So I'm just giving you major cliff notes version and just kind of shooting to the chase, cutting to the cake. Cutting it through, you know, just to kind of let you know why we started, why we exist. So, right on. Could you talk just a little bit more about um, maybe it's the 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 clinic or the growing edge right now for Abide that you're you're pressing into that you're excited about that you'd like for us to know more about? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, our clinic director is going to be here in July. Um, we actually, our, our plan was to open next year and we are planning to open our clinic this year because of COVID and everything that's happening in our country. Um, across several hospitals across the country, doulas aren't allowed to go into the hospital with our mothers. Um, it's proven studies show that having a doula helps, um, reduce the likelihood of having a C-section. And so, doulas also advocate for women. They empower women to speak and to um, know their rights in the hospital setting. And it's the hospital setting. It's going into um, spaces that aren't centering black women where we're at risk because of systemic racism, because of blatant racism, because of implicit bias, because of how, uh, because of um, how we may speak or are, um, what name we have, if we have insurance or not. There are so many. So I'm excited about this. And one of the things I want to mention is um, one of the things that sets us apart from any other clinic or hospital, because a lot of people ask, so why not go somewhere else? Well, it's because we recognize that the problem is systemic. And so we're we're inventing new systems. We can't, we can't, You know, we can work on digging out the root. We can continue to work on that, and that's what we should do. But what we're doing is we're creating a completely new system. And we're saying, okay, we're centering Black women. All of our volunteers and our employees will have continual implicit bias and cultural humility training. 
it's requirement. And it's not just a one and done, okay, I'm culturally competent. No, we're continually unpacking that so that we can provide the best care. And then also, and just bear with me, I'm going to grab my baby real quick. <laughs> I knew this was going to happen. <laughs> and, <coughs> and we love it. <laughs> this is Eli. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I think that is the one thing that I'm really excited about is how we're, we're starting from the ground up, like we're getting to the root of the problem. And so that we know that any, any person that comes through our doors, they're going to be treated humane. You know, this is, this is also not just about equality. We're not looking for equality. We're looking for equity. You can't have equ- you can't have equality without equity. And so inventive systems, um, you know, addressing our biases, you know, abide is a type, abide, honestly, this organization here in Dallas, one of the most racist cities in the country is a, is a, is a form of reparation. Really, that's how I view the organization. And so, um, yeah, you got to reel me in. <laughs> oh, no, Cecily, that's great. Uh, uh, I thank you so much for for sharing what you shared um, for for the work that you're doing. Um, uh, John, I see you asking what's her URL. I'll share that in an email after this gathering, so you can get a hold of that. Um, I want to. I want to finish our interview time by asking you, Cecily, if you would share, I get the sense you're a person of faith. Um, what, what are ways we could pray for you and for the work that you're doing? Absolutely. So, um, Abide is a, um, I don't know if you all know this, but we are an organization that's going to be run by a team of midwives. And if you know anything about midwives, black midwives, we were catching, the grand midwives were catching everybody's babies, okay? And um, somewhere along the way, midwives were vilified. And um, now in this country, black midwives make up 2% of the midwives in this country. And we own, we don't own anything. Um, And so birth centers across the country as you can imagine, they have the funding, they have the money, they have all of the privileges, you know, except for black midwives, black indigenous people of color midwives. And so um, I strongly urge you to be, please be in prayer over all black indigenous people of color midwives and birth workers that are doing this work. We have been doing this work. We have been on the ground, in the trenches, saving ourselves. Okay? And so we need the funding to do the work. You know, I've been getting lots of DMs from well-meaning white people. And that's the sigh I get. <sighs> come and volunteer, to come and volunteer. We need funding. So 
I, I urge you, please, please pray over that and also pray over, um, pray that we have endurance and strength because this is exhausting. This work is exhausting. And I want to be honest, forthright with you is, um, I had a little bit of anxiety before getting on this call because I have not spoken with a group of white people in a while, you know? And so I didn't really know what I was going to come. I, I wasn't sure what I was walking into. Um, thankfully, God is good. And I'm, I'm feeling pretty comfortable right now. But just if you can just pray over abide and over the many, um, if you can go to birth, ec- the uh, birth center equity fund, dot org, I believe, birth center equity fund, dot org or dot com. Um, you, you'll see a listing of all established birth centers and developing. There aren't very many, but we need funding. Okay. And, um, so before we move forward, I want to give you a call to action. Okay. Yeah, we welcome it. These are five ways that you can help. Okay. The first one is to become a monthly donor. Okay. You can go to abidewomen.org. There's our URL. <laughs> abidewomen.org and become a recurring donor. You can also mail a check to PO box 152243 and, um, Dallas, Texas 75215. I'll have to type that in somewhere or email it. Um, the second thing is you can contact your employer to see if they would provide um, matching donations towards Abide. Contact your employer, talk to your university, talk to whomever that you know in corporate, and see if they would be interested in providing matching donations from their employees. Three, you can host a Zoom call fundraiser to learn more about Abide with your family and friends. And you can email me at cecily at abidewomen.org. Fourth, you can purchase items from our Amazon wish list. We have tons of items on there. Right now we're doing COVID relief, providing material goods for moms within the community. We're doing porch deliveries. No questions asked. We get lots of women who contact us um, because other places are asking for too much information or they're undocumented, and we don't ask that. Name, phone number, what do you need? Okay, we're removing, removing barriers to care. And then five, commit yourself to being anti-racist. The lives of our mothers and their families depend on it. There's no more, no more saying that you're not racist. It's committing to be anti-racist. Wow. Thank you. Cecily, would someone volunteer to pray for Cecily and Abide and the things that she shared? God, I thank you um, for Abide, Lord God, and, and the place, Lord God, that it has in a community, Lord, that your heart is after. That there are oppressed people, God that there are people who are forgotten, God, that there are people who are ignored, Lord, um, and you don't abandon them. Lord God, instead, you take people like Cecily, Lord God, and you put them in place to make a difference. I pray, Lord God, that she would have a community and we would be a part of that community. Lord God, that would would um, 
would not only, Lord God, fund her, God, but would pray for her, God, mm-hmm. that would offer her encouragement, God, and that would, would be able, Lord God, to engage on a level, Lord God, that, that would make us equitable, God. Mm-hmm. Um, I pray, Lord God, that as we commit today mm-hmm. to seeing uh, change in our community, Lord God, we would not just offer up thoughts and prayers, God, but we would put Lord God, our money where our mouth is, Lord, and and our actions behind, Lord God, our heart. Do that for us, Lord God. Move inside of our heart. Remind us. Don't let us forget, Lord God, the emotions that we have today. Don't let us forget, Lord yes. God, the, the, the desire we have to see equity, God. Yes. But instead, Lord God, continually remind us and, and, and annoy us about where we are. In yes. Jesus' name, I pray. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. Um. I, I volunteer, but I also wanted to say um, to friends and family, one, uh, thank you so much um, for backing our voice on the on, on Facebook as we talk to people. Sarah has been amazing in particular. Um, uh, Burn it down. <laughs> <laughs> because, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's just been, it's been difficult for people who aren't ready um, to to see racism for racism, uh, the second thing I wanted to say is I realize that um, the prevailing advice right now is to not ask a black person for information, and I understand why that is. Right, re-traumatizing someone is hard for them, but this is my passion. Right, um, if you need information, I there are there are better voices than others, right? And sometimes just having information, you can end up with information from Thurgood Marshall and you can end up with information from Clarence Thomas, right? Very different information. Yeah. Um, it's something I am passionate about. So I am more than willing to have long conversations. I am more than willing to offer um, uh a um, resources, and I would ask uh, if there is going to be equity, right? Um, that where you see me off, I, I realize that that's an uncomfortable position for you as a white person. Um, but where where I am unjust, that you you speak to me too, so that we can meet each other on the same level and look each other in the eye, and I can have dignity and respect, and you can have dignity. Thank you, brother. I love you, man. Love you, too.